Live from the Stew Podcast with me, Robbie Digital. It's the first day of fall, so this means cuddles, coats, or cider, depending on how you feel. Pumpkin spice. We're not doing pumpkin spice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, once again, I have a a good friend of mine who's here today. Her name is Sabine, a.k.a. Chef B. Hello. Hey. I hope you didn't say Sabine just now, did you? I don't think so. Oh, I think I heard that Sabine. Like, like, like from like Star Wars, Sabine? Was there a character named Sabine? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. I'm not into Star Wars, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I have my nerdy ways. Yeah. Did I say it though? I, I don't know. Sabine. So S-A-B-I-N-E. Yes. Okay. That's what you said? Yes. Just kidding. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Of course. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Tired, but good. Tired is good. Uh, my Ish. friend says, uh, my good friend Noel says, tired, never bored. A fact. So it's always like moving, but never not moving. So I am never not moving. <laughs> but it has to feel good, though, because you work for that moment to, to, to constantly be on the move. Yeah, it's good. It's good when it pays off, you know. Yes. Um, but it can be exhausting. It's could be exhausting to the point where, like, when you have the time to relax and you don't know what to do with yourself. Oh, yeah, because you have the time to relax and then you relax and then time goes past. You're like, fuck, I could have been doing something. Yeah. Why was I just sitting here doing nothing? Now the day is gone. It's more like when I'm in that moment. It takes me like 24 hours to actually relax. So I need two days off. That's f- I can understand that. You know what I mean? Like, I, my brain is moving the whole time of things I need to do. And then finally, I'm like, all right, I'm about to binge four shows. Mm, what have you watched recently? Ooh, let's see. Okay. I hate to say this. So, I have been in, like, this, like, mindless TV. I don't want to think. So, mm-hmm. I just started Grey's Anatomy all over again. What? You like crying? You know... <laughs> It's different, though, because, like, the world sucks. So it's like I get to go into this, like, dramedy, you know, escape into McDreamy drama. And that's much better than what is out there right now. So mm-hmm. Shonda be having people going through it. I cannot watch Grey's Anatomy. I, lo- I am 17 seasons deep. What? Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I just started over again, but okay. I've watched all 17 seasons. My little sister was watching it, and she had me watch one episode, and, like, someone, like, I guess it was an accident. Someone's life gets saved, but then the person who saved their life, they die. And I'm like, yo, I can't watch this. This is too emotional. It's way too emotional. I can't do it. Like, it, I'm like, yo, you can't be attached to anybody. She's like, no, everyone dies. I'm like, nah, I can't watch That's this. That's a fact. So the early seasons are more of a love story, so it's a lot It's a lot easier and calmer. Mm-hmm. But um, when I get there, I probably will switch to something else. Yeah. I don't know. I, I People will suggest things, and I'm like, yeah, I can't do it right now. I need to, like, not. Schitt's Creek is, like, my favorite. Mm, that is my favorite. I haven't, I haven't watched that before. Schitt's Creek is hilarious. you got to get past the first season, but it is so, like, great mindless TV, excellent writing. I would watch that again as well. Hmm. I've, um, I've committed to watching The Sopranos for the first time. I have never watched The Sopranos. I'm two seasons in, and I'm very intrigued. I can see why people 
really like gravitated to yeah. this show at the time. Have you watched it before? Yeah, so I watched it, but it was like, you know, cable, no no recordings time, no yeah. streaming time. So it was like if I I never was hard like strongly committed to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure if I went back to it, there's a lot that I haven't seen. I know that there were times where I was like maybe in the later seasons I watched it consistently, but in the beginning it was just kinda hit or miss. Yeah, I think the only thing that I have like like the way you feel about Grey's, the only show I'm very, very um like I keep close to the chest like that is Mad Men. Okay. I've I've never watched it but heard it's great. It's an incredible series. Yeah. Like really, really um the character development, the plot, yeah, the story, um the clothes. The clothes. That's what that's what I heard. The clothes. I yeah. had the opportunity to go to um the Museum of Moving Images in Astoria when they uh actually recreated the sets in the museum and it took some of the clothes yeah. from the show and actually sat it on like place it on mannequins. And the clothes were so like vintage that we couldn't even take pictures of the clothes because the light from the phone could um like I guess damage fade out okay. damage out the material and fade it out. So yeah. it was just like a memory. That's fire. I gotta yeah. check that out. That's definitely a good a good show for me to get into. If you love marketing, love like the human thought process when it comes to advertisement and how that works, Mad Men is still hold still stands. Yeah. A lot of the marketing principles are still very much the same. Like nothing has changed in that area. So it's really, really good. So okay. I would I would highly suggest that. I feel like I'm so I'm like holding my breath because I'm like, are you gonna be able to hear me breathing in this part? <laughs> <laughs> you're fine. All Trust right. me, you're fine. Um so let's let's go back a, a little bit. Like okay. we know that you're like a world renowned chef now. Everyone knows you. You're you're like the bell of the ball now. Like, it, it, but I want to I want to take dial it back. You're so funny. I I love that energy. You know, I accept that because I want to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, world renowned is huge, but you know, I'm working on being there. Look, as long when you're from New York, New York runs the world, so you're world renowned. That's a fact. You're right. You're yeah, right. Yeah. So like, it, it makes sense to me. You're right. You're absolutely right. So um, let's let's go back. Where are you from in New York? Born and raised. Born and raised. So born in Queens to Long Island to okay. Brooklyn. I've lived in Brooklyn now for about 10 years. So would you say out of those three places you call Brooklyn your home the most? Yeah, because that's where like my whole adult life has been. But I would say Queens is where I have more relationship with because even when I moved to Long Island, my grandmother's house was still in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's where my more of my identity came from. Okay. Yeah. But like, you know, I went to junior high school and high school in Long Island. Okay. Yeah. And, and when you come, when you say identity, would you say like, because I know you have a Caribbean Yeah. Well, my heritage. family on both sides are from Haiti. I'm, you know, firstborn generation here. Um, I would say, yeah, my my identity, my with with my Caribbean culture, um, you know, personality in terms of like where my friends were based out of, um, but you know, I mean, in some ways, I'm still really a Long Island girl, you know. 
just like my iced coffee and my yeah, pumpkin spice, you know. <laughs> I definitely am a Long Island girl. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love that you threw uh, pumpkin spice in there. Like I, you know, when someone like uh, I don't know. I don't see what people see in it, but I understand. All right, I'm gonna say. I get that because it's actually overhyped now. I kind of liked it when it was just, you know, your little Starbucks. It came yeah. around for three months. Now you walk into Trader Joe's. Give it one week. It's going to look like pumpkin just like threw up in there. So Yeah. It's, it's a bit much. much. Yeah, it's, it's a, a bit lot. much. For me, I'm more of a, uh, I, like when, when fall hits, I like to do, go apple picking. Mm-hmm. Um I like to go to like the Italian festival in 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 Soho. I like to like get cider. They're like yeah. there's little fall things I like to do, but I avoid pumpkin at all costs. All right. I, so how do you feel about food at San Gennaro? Um, you know, San Gennaro it's it holds a place for me because I was a huge um, Hey Arnold fan. Okay, as a kid and. Uh, when I lived down south, San Gennaro, the first time I had saw it was on a Hey Arnold episode. Okay. So, and Hey Arnold was so weird because you didn't know where Arnold lived. Okay. But I always felt like he lived in like that Crosby, Prince Street kind of vibe, but not as expensive. I don't know. So like that was my first like remnants of it. So when I saw it, it was always like, the food was cool. The culture was cool. It was cool to look at and take pictures. And it's like one of those small moments that you look forward to being in New York and being a New Yorker. Yeah. I I have a relationship with it as well as like from childhood. My mom used to take me every single year. And, you know, like as a kid, it's just like bright lights and games mm-hmm. and funnel cakes. So it was just like, yeah, this is awesome. Um, I hadn't gone in years and then I went a couple of years ago and I was just so disappointed by the food. And it's because like every booth is selling the same thing. And, it Absolutely. Just, you know, there's so many great gems in Little Italy. I feel like it just kind of waters it down. It makes it very touristy. So it, I, it disappointed me a little bit because I was like, wait, this is not what I remembered it to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure if you come visit there, it's still Really it still has that spac- special, right. uh, magical moment for people, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's also like now as as a New Yorker, it's like oh, this shit is happening again. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I guess being from the Bronx, we have Little Italy, yeah. So I can always go to Arthur Avenue and kind of get that feeling. Yeah, I have not explored Bronx food the way I should, and I know it's amazing. I hear nothing but good things. I know that for a fact. There's a lot of great gems being from the Bronx. Yeah. But then you, like, you're saying growing up in Queens, Queens is like the fifth most diverse city in the United States. Yeah. Like, you can hit every part of the world in Queens. Mm -hmm. So that, that had to be really interesting growing up. As a kid there, and then before getting to Long Island. And when you're a Caribbean, you know, you just eating the food. There's food in the house. Yeah, yeah we got food at home. <laughs> we got food at home. <laughs> um, my mom was good. My mom, you know, was a single mom. So, like, she was very good about uh, every other Friday. As, I, as an adult, I realized it was payday. She would take me out to eat, right? Okay. I didn't know that as a kid, right? I'm like, yeah, it's, it's our going out day, right? It was like, it was payday. <laughs> um, so, she was good about that. But I think that... Like, when you live in these boroughs, you can be just kind of stuck in it, right? And, like, yeah. I just feel like we just stayed in our 
area. And then when I moved to Long Island, we lived in I lived in Freeport, and there's just like the nautical mile there, and there's a bunch of restaurants there. Um, so I was a very I was I loved seafood from like birth. I was just big in seafood. Um, so yeah, that would be where I'd go out to eat. I feel like my mom was really a great diner person. Like I love, I love a diner, right? Oh my god! My mom could find the best diners, and we really did diners. That's my thing. Yeah. Like to me, I know it's not like conventional as a date. Like I know a lot of people like yeah. diners, and I'm like diners are the places where I think some of the greatest conversations come from. Right. Um, each one has their own personality. Can order a million things. A million things. A million things. You know, it's kind of like Chinese restaurant. Not, I'm not talking about like storefront Chinese. Yeah. Like, if it's not on the menu, they'll make it for you. Yeah. Right. And like the same concept is with the diner. It's like I think we got that, and the chef is gonna figure out how to make it in a diner. Those late night moments of like going to a diner. Even like being in the Bronx, so we're uh, we're the only borough that's like inland, right? right? So every other borough is on literally on the island. So when you go up into the Bronx, you go into Westchester. Mm-hmm. Westchester is kind of like that Long Island, Jersey vibe, right? So there's a lot of diners, and I think that was the first time I had ever tried disco fries. Like I had, I was working at Starbucks and. Uh, my friends are like, my co-workers are like, yo, let's go get food after work. And I'm like, uh, okay. So we go to this diner. And I was familiar with diners, but I had never had this. So yeah. everybody's like, yo, we're getting disco fries. I'm like, what the fuck is disco yeah. fries? And I just remember eating these waffle fries with mozzarella cheese and gravy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this has been here the whole time? <laughs> I've like, been out on this my whole life. life. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you can get breakfast at any time of day. Like, <sighs> diners are really, um, yeah. I, I actually don't do diners that much anymore because I'm in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn has its gems, but diners are not it. There's one that I know. Uh, I listened to a Sky Zoo interview, mm-hmm. and he goes to very frequently. I don't know if it made it. Through COVID, but there's like one in particular that he really, really loves okay. that he stands by. So when I'll get the name, I'll definitely. Yeah, I need to hear it. that because uh, there's some things that I, I will, and you can fight me on this. Long Island has better bagels than Brooklyn. I'm saying that right now. I believe I, that. I stand by that. Okay, I miss a bagel from Long Island. I miss a diner from Long Island. You know, it's just those things. Like I just love that. Like when you walk into a diner, kind of it's like a. a it's like a time machine. Mm-hmm. Like, and, it, and it, it varies. You can get a very, like, 50s, 60s mm. kind of feel. Or, like, I can go to, like, one one of my favorite ones I used to go to is on uh, Kingsbridge in the Bronx underneath uh, Jerome Avenue. And it's a Spanish-owned diner, but I've gone there a million times. Yeah. Quiet, like, I'm going to get a bite to eat. Or one of my personal favorites was, like, Munch Time on 170th Street. I've been there since I was going as a kid. So like I and then when I started driving, it was like, oh yeah, this is like I would go to Yonkers, yeah. go to Rye. So I definitely understand. So it's a thing. Yeah. And you and they put current music in it. So it's like cool. You can put like a little coin in it. Right. In a jukebox. I kinda like when it keeps the old feel because it's like 
the food is just better. And when they try to like modernize them, I'm like, oh, all right, just just stick to what you know, you know, <laughs> stick to what you know. So you've always kind of been around food, always kind of been there. Um, I'm assuming like early, early ages and early remnants of like cooking with your mom, I'm assuming too. Yeah, so cooking, my relationship with food, and this is something that I, as I moved into the food industry, have started to think about more. Uh, my relationship with food was definitely more with my grandmother than with my mom. Really? Now, my mom cooks. She cooks, <laughs> cooks, okay? But my mom was also working a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So I was latchkey, came home, and I used to just get creative, very early in life with like what was in the fridge, whatever. Um, my mom would say I made pasta all the time, which <laughs> I don't agree with her. She's like, you're always cooking. You were always cooking pasta. But my relationship with the kitchen is with my grandmother. So my grandmother was definitely like a second mother to me growing up. As most of us who come from single parent households. Right. And so, you know, when I lived in Queens, we were just a block away from my grandmother's house. It's so many. It's weird how like you remember things as as an adult. My mom had said to me recently. She was like, "Yeah, like you were at your grandmother's house probably more than you think," um, and I didn't even see it that way. But I was always with her. She was always going to like Jamaica Ave to get fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's really where I would say I connected with food to begin with. And she made everything from scratch. Um, she had like a corner property in Queens and. Uh, the driveway was lined with uh, center blocks, right? Mm-hmm. Like the wall of the driveway. And alongside it was her herb garden. And how she would have me go get the herbs, and she'd be like the sixth one in, you know, you know, like she'd block. count the sound yeah. center blocks, and that's how I would know which herb to go cut for her, and she would tell me how much to get. So that's really like my relationship with, how cooking started for me. I didn't know that at first until I started to get deeper into it. It's crazy, like, the... And and I tell people, like, when it comes to cultures, whether, you know, Caribbean, African-American, being black, we're all distant relatives of the same story. Yeah, for sure. sure. So, like, growing up in the Bronx, um, I didn't didn't live that far from here. Um, My grandmother had a house, and she had a garden in the backyard. And she would grow squash and tomatoes and collard greens. And, like, I would always see her in the garden just, like, growing stuff and cutting stuff and doing stuff. And, um, yeah, same. My mom would go to work. And, And it's interesting because it's, like, you know, people ask, like, what is it, like, I, I can only imagine being a parent in New York, but it's like you kind of have to make that decision. Like, all right, if I'm going to take care of my kid financially, then I need to go to work. Right. If I'm going to have time to raise my kid, I won't be able to like financially do for my kids. So this is it's like a it's like a hand in hand thing. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people don't realize outside of New York why our grandparents, a lot of us have so much attachment to them. Right. Because they were so pivotal in our mm-hmm. childhood. Like it's almost like. Our parents were more like business partners. Yeah. Like, yo, I need you to do this because if you don't do this, I have to take off from work. If I have to take off from work, it's going to be a problem. So I definitely understand, like, being around my grandmother and how important that was growing up. Yeah. I'm not, and 
I'm not super close to my dad, um, but he can cook too. He really yeah. can cook. Yeah. So when I would, when I was really young and I would spend like, you know, every other weekend or whatever time at his house, I do always remember that like he cooked for me as well. So like it came from both sides. Um, my dad fished. He's still fishing. Oh, that's dope. Like, that's dope. Goes all the way up to like Boston. Yeah. Maine. Goes like three, four hours yeah. out to sea. That's one of the things as a Long Island girl that I wish I got into and I never did. It's it's awesome to get like to actually catch your meal. I think there's this a satisfaction in that that's pretty fire. Even if you're not the person to cook it, like you're handing it off, but like you were part of the whole process. process. Yeah. He took me I I went for the first time last year. Yeah. And he was like, we're on the boat, and like I'm holding on to the boat, and I'm holding on to the, to the, to the line. And he's like, all right, put the bait on the hook, hook the hook, then you throw it, and then you know, I was like, yo, fam, <laughs> this isn't for me. This isn't for me. Uh, uh, the other kid I went, who went with us, he's inside of the boat, throwing up for dear life. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yo, yeah, you gotta be prepared for that. Yeah, yeah. like it felt like wildest catch. Yeah, but he enjoyed himself. Right. So, but I definitely know what you mean of just that, like having that duality right. from both sides. How was school? School. Like growing up and going to school, like what was, or better yet, what was like a typical Saturday for you? That's a great question. All right. So I went to Catholic private school my entire life. Um, so Saturdays really was like where you got to be yourself. Right. And that's also where my sneaker relationship came from. I'll get into that at another time. But um, yeah, so Saturdays, if I was with my mom, uh, wake up first thing in the morning, clean. Right. Absolutely. No, I don't remember a time when that wasn't the case. I mean, not to say like I was like a toddler cleaning, but like I don't remember not waking up on Saturday mornings to clean. And my mom wakes up my entire life at like 6 a.m. So she might have given me to like 7.30, but that was To it. figure it out. Like, hey. Yeah, like I, I'm an early riser because of her. Uh, um, not so much anymore now that I travel and my times are messed up. But like I've always been a, I'm up at 7. Um, I, you know, did dance school for a while as a kid. So Saturdays were usually that dance school, gymnastics. Um, she kept me very busy. And I think that that was her way of like, I'm working, but I want to make sure that you can you can do things. Um, but one of the things that was the problem was that she didn't force me to stick it out. Uh. So um, it depends on what year you ask me about. I might have been doing <laughs> karate. I might have been doing dance school. Like, So you was a jack of all trades. Sure. <laughs> Master of none, for sure. Um, but she indulged me, which was awesome. Uh, she would let me be super creative. And I think that, like, you know, for a long time, I thought I was going to be in fashion. And she really pushed me to, like, draw and sketch and all of that. I can so, see that. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Didn't do that, though. But, you know, she encouraged me to do it until it was college time. And then she was like... You gotta get a real degree. <laughs> so. Well, you know, you know that happens. Yeah, like, yeah, for sure. You know, like a lot of my my uh, friends who are first generation, they're yeah. always like, "I want to be a creative." And the person's like, Haha, "Yeah, yeah, pick, pick pick one." Yeah, 
my mom definitely was like that. Like I wanted to uh want to be a I wanted to be a vocal technician. I had watched making the band and uh I had saw Pooh Bear who was a, a vocal technician. Yeah. So what they do is like the producer makes the song, the songwriter puts the words to the song and then the vocal technician sings it in the pitch to give to the singer. And then they sing it. Right. So I had heard that and I always like knew how to make inflections with my voice. So it's like, yo, mom, I want to do that. She's like, boy, that's not a real job. Yeah, get no, out of here. Pick pick a pick a major. Right. <laughs> so, so I definitely understand. She encouraged business. Um, so she was like, if you want to do fashion, like get into the business side of it. And that's what I ended up going to school for was business initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to CW Post my first year of school and then I transferred to Stony Brook, and they didn't have... No, excuse me. I, I did marketing mm-hmm. initially because um, I was thinking I'd just go into fashion marketing and, and then indulge myself later on in fashion. But I went to Stony Brook, and then I went into the business program there, which was so hard. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to fail out of school. But during that same time, I took this class... Um, I don't, I know you don't know this about me cause I, my degree is actually in health science, public health. Yeah. So not food related at all. So initially I went into the business program, almost failed out for sure. Like really by the skin of my teeth. But at, while I was doing that, I was taking this class called AIDS, race and gender in the black community. And it really changed everything for me. Um, there was just so much information that I was shielded from, you know, when I moved to Long Island, just a very white community mm-hmm. um, in a household where it was just like we we came out of these things. So we don't really discuss these things kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this exposed a lot to me and I, I, that I just had no exposure to. And so I ended up moving my career, in, I mean my career, my degree into health science Um and then Africana studies was my minor, which, you know, that was, yeah, that was just so that I could like get a deeper understanding of the community that I wanted to work in. So my, initially I thought I was going to do HIV education, which I did when I first got out of college and I worked in a space of like, am I going too far? <laughs> am I saying too much right now? No, right, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're, you're bodying it. Like, right, you're, so, you're great. Yeah. I worked in like human services uh, for for 11 years before I started in the food space. So let, let's talk about that. I feel like um, human services is, is such a... It's interesting, right? Because like as, as a community, like you said, we're... I don't want to say sheltered, but there's so many things that we're not privy to sometimes. Mm-hmm. And even, um, even I would assume you growing up and going to private school... That leaves you with some sort of an advantage more than public school. So if you felt like you didn't have enough information, I can only imagine what a kid who went to public right. school kind of felt like. And particularly Catholic school, right? Because mm-hmm. there's things that they're really not discussing in Catholic school. Oh yeah, you're school, not right? you're not getting the nitty gritty. Like yeah, you're not. You may not. dissect a frog, but you're not going to see the childbirth video, right? Like you know, I, I said it was mostly HIV education that I got interested in because my. Education up until that point of HIV was really like that that 1980s perspective of like just 
ignorance, right? Like, yeah. I just didn't know any better. And I, you know, I, I considered it to be something that was, like, you know, drug-related or, like... Dirty you know, needles. Right, yeah. yeah. So I had no idea. And so when I understood how it was affecting the black community and why and the, the like, the, I don't know how to explain this, but, like, when I saw the people in it, right? Yeah. More than the disease. I was really just intrigued by that um, and the, the need for education. And for me, it was like, okay, I don't know this stuff. There are people like me that don't know these things. Absolutely. I remember like learning about HPV in like eighth grade mm-hmm. and um, it was like, yeah, there's like different forms and then, then you can get it by human contact. And, this, and I was like, right. what the fuck? Like, I was like, why? Mm-hmm. I came back to school with my report and was like, why doesn't anyone know this? Right, right. <laughs> Why is no one talking about this? Yeah. So I can only imagine like how eye-opening that was. And then learning people who got into those experiences or those entanglements or those situations purely by like having emotion and not knowing the effects of what's on the other side of that. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was like, I really wanted to be in education and not like as a teacher, but like educating on these subjects. It started off with, um, HIV education and sex education. And so my, my first job was with like a nonprofit doing, doing that work, but also because it was a nonprofit, you had to be like a jack of all trades. So like, I also worked in a mentoring children of prisoners program. And so it was like basically teaching, you know, doing the curriculum with the mentors and pairing them up with mentees. And I got my first mentee like that. Um, Shout out to Shay. She's still my girl. (laughs) So uh, I then started to be on that side of things, working on the, the corrections side of things. And that then intrigued me. Um, and then I started to actually teach sex education in correctional facilities. How was your mental during that? I time? was also twenty three, guys. So that was interesting. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. Like you're 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 dating, finding yourself, going through what you're going through. Like from a personal perspective, like mm-hmm. becoming a woman, like learning all of these things, like you're on your own, developing your personality, still developing at that time. Mm-hmm. And then you're going, teaching the youth about sex education, then teaching in correctional facilities, and now you're meeting people with different energies in different spaces. At that time, how how did that weigh on you mentally, just to be in those different spaces with different people? I mean, at that time, I think I was just a sponge. I think there was a benefit of the fact that I was young, so mm. I just wanted all the information, and I wanted to connect with as many people as possible. Uh, the longer you're in that space, the harder it becomes. But mm. I worked sp- primarily with adolescents. So I worked in juvenile detention. I worked with um, young adults incarcerated, so under 19. And so, and then I also worked in high schools doing this as well. I ran groups in high schools with kids who were considered at risk, which, you know, hate that. But, um, yeah. <laughs> so I... I felt very connected to that group because I was young enough for them to listen to me. Mm-hmm. And I've always looked, I mean, I was I was 23, but I looked like I could be in high school. Like when I pulled up to the jails, they were like, what are you doing here? Um, yeah. 
So, but that gave me the advantage of being able to connect with people very easily. So with that, I was excited to do it. You know, um, working for nonprofits can be challenging. That it can be. So I never was able to connect with that side. I was really rebellious. Any boss that I ever had will tell you that I like this isn't how it's supposed to be, right? Because supposed I, to be with the people. What yeah, what's bureaucracy? I don't want to do this. Right, I was like paperwork from birth, actually. <laughs> but um, uh, any anybody who's had to supervise me, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I did not make it easy because I hated having to fill quotas when there was real work to be done, and yeah. so that was challenging for me. That was probably the hardest part. Especially when they don't, the problem I have sometimes is um, when you have the perception of connecting with people and then then that's when the numbers come in after and you're like, wait a minute, well, if we start looking at these numbers, then we're, we're template matching right. and we're cherry picking and we're stereotyping and are we really helping people? Right. And that's what I said, like, I can, like, I guess... Having youth on your side at that time, it was kind of like being like, yeah, whatever, like this is rebellion, like, you know what I mean? Like, this is bullshit. But then I'm pretty sure now, like, if I was teaching now and had like little kids and had, I'd be crying every day. Literally, like, I'm, I'll be, I'm way too emotional now. So, like, yeah. I think younger you can deal with it. Yeah. Older, like, you're like, you, it's more reflective now. Like, I can't believe that you have to go through that at this age. Yeah. I, I don't know. As I've gotten older, what's happened is that not that I'm so much more emotionally connected. It's more that like it's actually the opposite. Really? It's actually the opposite. Um, And yeah, I'll I'll get to that. So part of it, like the numbers piece that got to me, I was working with this like runaway and homeless youth program and doing like outreach. And there was, you know, the sex sex education involved in that. but they wanted us to reach 10,000 kids a year. And I remember being like, first of all, if anybody's familiar with homeless in Long, homelessness in Long Island, it's a very hidden population. It's much more of like couch surfing, staying with friends. You're not yeah. seeing kids in the street. Yeah. Right? Um, so it was, it was virtually impossible, right? So, yeah. I mean, I worked in high schools, and I was supposed to reach them there, too. Especially in Long Island. Because, yeah. you know... Stereotypes the, the the idea of thought is like If you live in Long Island You're doing better than most Right Suburby You know what I mean So mm-hmm. It is a lot of kids Hopping from house to house yeah. Because All their friends have houses Right So they're never really like Homeless homeless Right So at that time I was very much Like I wanted to house everybody Right <laughs> Um, I was way more emotional about it then. I was like, you know, I did my job, but I very much wanted to adopt everybody. I'm, I'm tw- now, now I'm like 25, 26, and I'm still like, I, I want to take everybody home, right? Um, <laughs> but working with adolescents was great because it was, it was hope at the other side of that. You knew that even though they were being challenged, it was just time for them to, mm-hmm. to have a different outcome. And so uh, I want to say... When I was 29 or 30, I started working with adults. And now I started working with adults who were previously homeless and now living in supportive housing. And so this is the beginning of my food journey a little bit. And this is where it gets a little bit different because with adults, it was hard for me because it felt like, is there hope? 
right? Like, you know, I'm trying to counsel somebody who's in their 60s to make better choices. And that was that was hard. And so I start then I started to feel a little bit disconnected where I was kind of like and I'm not saying that this is good at all. But like I was kind of like, yeah, you know, if it works, it works. Well, it's because it's human, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it, and it's nothing. It's nothing to feel ashamed about. Like that's how life happens. Like you know, in your even in the midst of your twenties, you're still making decisions, making mistakes, and you're learning from them. And you, you know, you hope to have a mentor, someone that you can use as a north mm-hmm. to guide you. With kids, you still have the beauty of having optimism because you don't know what the future mm-hmm. holds for them. Yeah. Malcolm Little can turn into Malcolm X. There's still a there's still a moment for that to happen. Right. So you hold on to that yeah. in each experience. When you deal with a motherfucker who's sixty, you're like, "Yo, fam, <laughs> enough is enough already." Yeah, like, you don't have that. Like you, you're on the other side of the hill. Like yeah. figure it out. But like, what do you want to do? So I can imagine it does happen though, right? Like there are people who make the change at sixty. And so it's important to still have that hope. And so when I started to feel that drifting from me, I knew that something had to change for me. Like this wasn't this wasn't my forever career. This wasn't the forever space that I was in. And so my position at this at this agency was uh, health and wellness coordinator, mm-hmm. um, which was like all all different spaces, whether it be like health outcomes, you know, diabetes, you know, hypertension, trying to like change people's health outcomes now that they're living in this space and they have stability. And food is at the root of a lot of that. So uh, we got a grant to provide fruits and vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables through like green market to all of our tenants in these buildings. That's, That's dope. And so there were... I think there was like five of us on my team and like 12 buildings throughout the agency. That number could be completely wrong, but I think that was about right. So we each had about each person in my position had two buildings. And so I think I was the, I want to say I was the first building to pilot it. I, I might've been the second. So we get these, we get these fruits and vegetables and I'll never forget this. We're giving them out weekly. Like let's say it was every Wednesday. We're giving out bags of all these things. And like, Months into it, the porter for the building comes up to me and he's like, you're wasting your time. And I'm like, what? (laughs) He's like, this is stupid. When I clean out the garbage, they throw everything away. And I'm like, wait, what is happening? Right. Because like I'm trying to make it a vibe. Right. On Wednesdays, I make the the community room like I got music on, giving out these bags. and People seem excited about getting these fruits and vegetables. And I did know, you know, we we did have a small percentage of people who would resell them to Swag. the to the, bodega, to the bodega on the corner. Which, hey, you know, I mean, this is New York City. It is what it is, right? So <laughs> you know, you I, do. I knew that was happening, but uh, you know, whatever, get your hustle on. Um, but what I realized was that it was because they didn't know what to do with them, right? Like. We know what we know. It doesn't matter how old we are. Yeah. Like, you know, like if I if I know spinach as the only vegetable, that's it. Like I don't know what to do with rutabagas and this. If I give you an eggplant, you're like, yeah, like, what do I do with this? Egg? Like, what do right. I do with this? Right. Um, so rewind a little bit. I've always had a side hustle. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Always. So at, at one point, I was like selling edibles. By the way, I was doing that before it was this big in New York years it's pretty, ago. It's right? pretty big now. It's yeah. pretty big. I should have stuck to it. <laughs> should have stuck to it. I was like selling edibles. I, um, you know, I started doing like event planning. And with the event planning, I was always cooking. Like if I wanted to throw an event and I didn't want to hire somebody, I would do the cooking myself. I've always known how to cook. Um, but I was never, I never saw myself in a professional food role it was really the events that I was in I knew how to throw an event I knew how to throw a party and so that's what my side hustle was or my side passion rather because I don't think I ever made money from event planning <laughs> but <laughs> um and so now I I kind of took that event planning side of me and put that into the health and wellness stuff and we, you know whatever lessons that we had going on we created an event around it or whether it be like holidays or whatever so now we have this fresh food box program i'm like all right let's make this a thing i decided to uh with the with the help of the director of nutrition decide to start doing like these food demos and so what i would do is demo one or two of the things that were in the bag create recipes and demo it two, three times during that day, have people come taste it. That way they were able to put something to it. And that program was wildly successful while I was there. I can only imagine because you, and I think like you said, you you can't be mad at what you don't know. So now you have the opportunity to really sit with people and say, okay, what are you guys throwing out? Right. (laughs) And then be like, well, I have squash. I don't know what to do with this rutabaga. I don't know what to do with beets. I don't know mm-hmm. what to do with that. You're like, all right, so let's really create something where you can find use in this food. Yeah. Especially when, you know, being in the city, there's a lot of food deserts. So, like, right. you have these places where you only know literally what you know. Mm-hmm. Like, people want Trader Joe's but don't know what the fuck is in Trader Joe's and, and buy the same thing they can buy in Pathmark. They just have the illusion of it being fresher or illusion because it's more fancier and people swear like like white ice is colder Mm -hmm. to buy it. So not knowing the opportunities to really go in and kind of like a take it back to like your childhood. Like we would watch like PBS Kids or something like Sesame Street where you actually go and look at different fruits and vegetables and Mm -hmm. learn what they are. Right. And it's like. All right, so there's a couple things that you said I want to touch on. Uh, I, I worked in East Harlem at the time. Um, at, when I first started, there were not as many supermarkets as there are now, but, you know, through gentrification, we are seeing a change in that. Um, but it was your your associated or ideal, whatever the supermarket it is, where it's overpriced, really shitty-looking fruits and vegetables. Absolutely. Um and then people who utilize their bodegas as their their supermarket, as their shopping. So, yeah, that was part of why this program existed was to give access right where they were to better fruits and vegetables. So I started doing this, these food demos and it, it woke me up a little bit. That hope that I started to lose was starting to come back because I had tenants come up to me and be like, I made this this week and showing me pictures of things that they were cooking and trying new things and actually going to the store to buy things that weren't even in the bag, right? And so now we have them in all the buildings. Some of my uh, people on my team hated me because they're like, we're not trying to cook. (laughs) And now they have to do it in their buildings. But like it also created a great community environment. And that's what even in the event planning for me was like community was always so important. 
and, you know, creating community around food was always, like, number one for me. Anybody, all of my friends know, like, come to my house and I'm cooking, I'm, like, doing the most, but it's really, like, the satisfaction I get is seeing other people eat and connect, right? So this was happening in my workspace, and it really just set a fire, right? So now I'm like, I really like this cooking thing. This is five years ago. October will be five years since, like, I officially started my business, but it started off as catering. Um, I start trying to do it as a business. It's also, that's the other side of me. Like, how do I make money? Money. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So... Um, I live in Brooklyn. I live in a duplex that has a pretty narrow kitchen. And, baby, I made magic in that kitchen. Like, I'm talking about, hey, can you cater for 150 people? And I'm like, sure. Didn't know what I was doing, right? But I knew I could cook. I knew I could make the food taste good. Um, I I wasn't giving you, you know... Top chef plating, but I was yeah. giving you good tasting food, and so through my network that was super supportive, they started hiring me for things and um, basically giving me the room to grow. And so, in the last two years that I worked in that space, I was also catering on the side. Um, some I, I'm forever grateful for those friends who opened those doors. You know, if they had an event at work, hey, do you want to cater it? Like, and I really, I don't want to say a little bit fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> but like, also, learning on the fly. There you go. That's, that sounds way <laughs> more sexy. Okay, uh, that's it's free. It's free. Thanks. I'm gonna keep it. I'm keeping that. Um, but yeah, it was that. It was like I really didn't know how to run a food business. I knew how to run business, but not a food business. And I didn't I didn't know how to charge appropriately. I was taking pennies. Oh my God. I was taking pennies, right? And um whatever. It just it gave me yeah. a lot of opportunities because of that. I I'm totally understanding that I got some of those opportunities because <laughs> I was cheaper, right? <laughs> but I loved it. And so now this is where like I become passionate about this in a way that I've never been passionate about something before um and so full circle this is now where i feel where i've connected with my grandmother who also passed away around that time when i first started like i have to believe that this came from her i don't know how to explain it i don't know if you will believe that but like i completely get it somehow like this was my inheritance from her and so I just got really good at it. Um, But I still didn't believe in myself (laughs) that much then. I was like, a lot of imposter syndrome. I'm good-ish, I guess. Might. You know, people don't complain about my food, but like. I'm still up at night watching Food Network. I'm looking at them like, yeah, hey, so I understand. And you know, and I'm, I'm seeing what a chef looks like and what people define as a chef. And so I didn't feel like I I earned that that role or that name yet. Um, And then I didn't want to. I looked into culinary school and I'm like, I'm not paying 30 grand. American. American dollars. Right. Like 30 grand. To to make soup. Yeah. uh, Because like, you know, these occupations that we speak of, like a chef, 
mason masonry um architecture it's years of apprenticeship mm-hmm. before you get that opportunity there's people who are like soup makers until they become like i, I guess like like the stew chef mm-hmm. which is second in command in the kitchen like it takes years before someone even gives you that trust in a restaurant to to have that responsibility right same thing as like a bartender with a bar back. Like right. you're a bar back for years before you were like a bartender. Right. And as I said, I've always been really rebellious. So <laughs> I was like, man, I'm not going to be getting tortured in nobody's kitchen. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that I had to work even harder because I didn't have that, um, that education behind me. So, um, I, I just start catering more and whatever. This girl I worked with, who were a friend of mine, I don't want to take her out away from where she was a friend of mine, and she was like, hey, you know, my friend is a, a private chef, and she's leaving her job in the Hamptons, and she, you know, I think you should go for that job, for that position. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, chef and Hamptons? Are you crazy? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like there's no way I can do this. And um, the, the client was super high end, right? And I remember being like, it's super VIP, I should say. And like, I just didn't think there was a way that I'm possibly going to get it. And she believed in me. Like she, I, she put the battery in my back. So finally, power I'm like, of friendship. Yeah, like just. A dope friend. Sometimes you need that. Yeah. Because she believed in me in a way that I... She saw something that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I, I am grateful to her. Shout out to Savannah. Um, you know, even a friend that I don't even speak to like that. But let me tell you. Anyway, so she... We always have friends like that. Right. Um, so she connects me with them. I interview. I'm thinking, there's no way. But let me... I was in that interview... Making it seem like I knew what I'm doing, but... Learning on the fly. There you go. Flying, <laughs> just soaring like an eagle. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so I end up getting the job. <laughs> and now I'm like, am I going to quit my job? Because this is this is a, a summer gig. Right? So I don't know yeah. what, what happens after this. It's a and summer that gig. is always the moment when... Yeah. Oh, man, like, I always... You ever played Super Mario? yeah. So I always say that stages in life are like stages in Super Mario. Okay. Where like you're flying and you're dropping into this new world and everything's happening really fast. And you're like, oh shit. So that transition from nine to five yeah, to being a full entrepreneur creative is scary as fuck. Sure. You don't because you're like, wait a minute. So, so wait, I don't have a schedule because I'm always working. Yeah, my life is my job now. There's nobody to, uh, like yell at me because my bills will do that. <laughs> don't say them. Don't say them. And they keep pulling up. So rude. <laughs> Mad rude. So like all of the things that like these moments. So I know you're like, okay, yeah, all right. So, yeah, <laughs> I was like, I went to my supervisor at the time. I've had some awesome supervisors, <laughs> but I went to my supervisor at the time and he was like, you can't leave. I'm like, I, I got to leave. I'm going to leave for four months. So what's going to happen? And he he suggested I took a leave of absence. 
But I knew that if I did that, I'd be stuck here for years, right? Like, I'd be just... Also, at the same time as this happened, as I mentioned, a big part of the success of this program was what I was doing in my building. And I stand on that, right? Like, a big, a big part of the reason that they ended up getting a $400,000 grant to push that program forward was the work that we were doing, right? They love to come in and take pictures of what we were doing and use that as as leverage to get this money. And I asked for a raise, and they weren't willing to give it to me, right? Oh, so that... So this is happening at the same time. They're offering me this position, right, uh, like a director position for something, and they, I mean, they were offering, only offering me like eight grand more than what I was making at the time. Maybe it was like 10, but I was looking, I'm like, nah, y'all gonna have to come with more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, After you've created a community, you've changed you change the role of what you had. Right. You've changed the expectations of the people. You're inspiring people. Right. You need to be well compensated for that. Right. Exactly. So I'm, I'm right here in the middle. I'm asking for this money and I'm like, if they don't give it to me, I'm leaving anyway. Right. Whether I get this, this chef position or not. And then I was like, you guys see my value because you want me to take the position, but you don't see it enough to give me the money. So I was like, I just got to do it. I I end up quitting my job. I moved to the Hamptons, um, which was (laughs) insane, insane. Um, Very different than what I had expected. So tell me that. Being a Long Island girl, Mm -hmm. having one idea of Long Island, and then going into the Hamptons, which is a completely different part of Long Island. So you're like... So it's like a layer within a layer. Like you thought you knew yeah. what you knew and then got there. It was like, I don't know what I thought I knew. Right. So, like, you know, you go to school with with rich kids. <laughs> so you, you're exposed to it. Um, but I've never been in a prior to that in a space of wealth to that capacity. Um, so it was a whole new world. And it was very isolating because... I didn't see people that look like me, right? I'm, I'm living at Brooklyn in Brooklyn at the time. I live in Bed-Stuy, and I'm like, nothing is the same. Nothing is the same. But I knew it was a job, and I knew that this was an opportunity of a lifetime for me. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to just push through this. The client was um, was born into wealth, you know, did not. Mm-hmm. Never lived a, a different life than this. Um, so she always saw people as, you know, the help. <laughs> Other. she She's always had the help. And so I remember that feeling, not feeling great, right? Like the, there's a chef who is glamorized. And, you know, when they walk in the room, they can be like a celebrity. And then, you know, often as a private chef, you can be put in that space of the help. There are moments of like, yeah, celebrity, and then there's moments so of like, like, speak when spoken to. I think I saw that in an episode of Sopranos, mm-hmm. and early on, I don't know if you saw the episode where uh, one of the friends owns a restaurant. Mm-hmm. All the mobsters go to that restaurant. It's his restaurant. Um, one of the bosses wants to do a hit out in that restaurant. He's like, yo, you can't do a hit. And that's our restaurant. What right. is wrong with you? So Tony blows up the restaurant to, to, to make one person happy. No one can do anything if the restaurant yeah. doesn't exist. So the friend is like heartbroken. He's lost his business. So he starts catering. 
the wife realizes in that moment that she got she went from looking being looked at as one place because mm-hmm. she was a part of the community because she had her own to when they asked her to do a catering event in her house and Tony's wife snapped at her and did this she realized she was the help right and that you know, i have to watch that episode because it's I, a very humbling moment <laughs> There have been moments. <laughs> there have been moments. And so, yeah, you you have this idea of what it looks like and then the reality. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I was, it was a time. But I learned a lot being there. And for me, it was like I want to make sure, one, I did not see other young black women as chefs. When I was there, I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm just saying yeah. that there were very limited supermarkets there. Yeah. I wasn't seeing people look like me. And I saw, like, in terms of people of color, Latino men, you know, mm-hmm. I was not seeing me represented as certain in terms of, like, being a chef. I saw nannies, obviously, that looked like me. And then. In the supermarket, that during like high season, there'll be a lot of people who come from Jamaica, like Jamaica, the country Jamaica, not mm-hmm. Queens, um, to work there. Uh, like they rent a house and then they work out there for the season. So, you know, I connected with them. That's who I was speaking to. Those were the people who looked like me that I was able to talk to. But I'm like, yeah, where, where's, where are the other chefs that look like me? And so for me, and, and it's still to date, it's been very important to me to like, position other people in those spaces um not only that but um i know it had to be difficult as a woman mm-hmm. and because it, i mean even in a tech space i've watched where a woman would say something and someone else will get a second opinion from a man as a rest of shoot, as a reassurance so i'm assuming going to these supermarkets going places where i need this 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 and this and this yeah. and they're like the hell are you? Like, no, I need this. Oh, yeah, for go sure. Fi- go find it. It's in here. Yeah. And then also, too, bringing your personality through your food. Food is something that's very, because it's so hands-on, it's energy. Yeah. So it's a trust there where, like, you're, you're making this to your best of your ability the way you learned how from your grandmother, right. adding certain things. You could. Then, no. Because you, you're talking that talk right now. I thought you could. Okay. <laughs> I'm really good at this, though. Okay. <laughs> so I can imagine that kind of um, expectation where you're like, okay, I make this this way. Mm-hmm. And people being comfortable with the way this is made. And then being in that space with white people being in. You got to tone it You got to tone it because it's a lot of this and a lot yeah. of that. And, <laughs> and that's. A lot to take in. Yeah. That's a lot of different energies. Yeah. It's a lot of prosciutto. It's a lot of like, <laughs> it's a lot of oregano. Yeah. It's a lot of different, you know. So yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, um, they had they had a chef come train me. So they they live in a different state during the year, and then they come to the Hamptons um, for the summer. And so their their chef from wherever they live uh, came in to train me. And she was like, you're basically going to be making the same, like, eight dishes over and over again. And that's exactly what it was. And it was very, 
very plain. <laughs> very, very plain. <laughs> so you went was, in with this. Yeah, I'm actually, thinking, I'm like, I'm about to spice it up <laughs> and, you know. Um, yeah, one thing I did. used the, the emerald. Bang! Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. None of that existed there. What, what I did get to do, though, was have, like, the highest of quality everything, right? Highest quality vegetables. I mean, steaks that I cannot begin to tell you. Like we're not talking wagyu, like we're talking like I mean, yeah, wagyu, but also like just ribeyes that are like six pounds, just just quality meats, right? When the um, color that you see on the sh- on like on a commercial when you see it, and it's like you never see that color in the supermarket, but you're seeing that color, right? <laughs> and so um, it changed my whole. I'm like, what am I eating out here, right? Um, yeah, what the hell? Yeah. Am I- yeah, I had to humble myself coming back home. I'll tell you that much. I came home and I'm like, ew, this is disgusting. Because <laughs> right? my supermarket is ideal, by the way, right around the corner from me. So we don't have those things there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it definitely gave me exposure to a much higher quality food. Um, it also gave me exposure to fine dining. This is somebody who, like I said, has always been in a wealthy space. So like... Everything like forks and you know everything had to be lined up perfectly. I learned a lot in that space. Um, thankfully, my grandmother was very big on like tables being set and all of that, mm-hmm. so I I kind of had that already. Um, but to a different level in this space, I learned also in that space that the housekeeper is your best friend. Private chefs or soon to be <laughs> private chefs. Let me tell you something. Don't think you're better than anybody in that space. The housekeeper, the groundskeeper, the landscaper, those are your friends, for real, for real. They look out for you. They are the ones who put you on to everything, particularly if there's a housekeeper or a nanny that has been in the family for a long time. They're going to tell you all the tea. That's a fact. (laughs) They're going to tell you all the tea, and they're going to have you on your toes, like, all right, you need to be here at this time, or she's coming, or whatever. Like, they get you ready. Um so the the housekeeper at the time, she was it was her and her husband who were like the house, the property managers. Like in terms of like they managed the property, made sure the yeah. groundskeepers rather groundskeepers. Yeah. Um, and then she did like housekeeping and things like that. They were this white couple that had to be I don't know at the time like early sixties. Those were my friends. Okay, <laughs> those were my friends in the in the Hamptons, but. Yeah, that was a, an interesting experience. So now I'm coming towards the end of the summer, and I have not a clue what's next for me. Um, again, my friends have always put me on, okay? And really, like, I, granted, it's my, it's my skill that gets me here, but it's definitely the connections that put me in the room. Um, so my friend works the U.S. Open every year, um, like, I... I actually don't know exactly what he does, but I, I want to say, like, he manages the suites mm-hmm. uh, during the U.S. Open. So he hits me up, and he's like, hey, I met this black couple. They want to meet you. They're looking for a chef. They want to meet you tomorrow. And I'm in the Hamptons. And I'm like, where? He's like, Tribeca. I have off on Sundays, but uh, this is a Saturday. And I'm like, I'm not going to Tribeca. He's like, yes, you are. You need to meet them. I can figure this shit out. Yeah, you are the <laughs> Puts me in contact with them, and you know now that I've been working for these, this couple for a while, I know that they were like, "Yeah, we want to meet them tomorrow and make it happen." They don't see any reason why 
it shouldn't happen. Um, I go meet not Tribeca Battery Park. So I go I go meet them in their their New York apartment. They're not New York based, but they have a, a home here. So I go meet them there. I've never seen an apartment that looked like this in my entire life, right? I'm like, what the hell? This is and black people were in it. And I remember being like, Yeah, this is who I need to work for. Because it's one thing having some white lady tell you how she want her steak cooked, right? But like, and not to say uh, I've I've had very diverse had clients. Some, yeah, I've had issues. Not to say you can't have some of these issues with black people either, but Absolutely. like, um, it was it was beautiful to see. I've never seen aspiration right i've seen rich black people right but i've never seen like wealthy like this that were not celebrity that were not you know athlete you didn't listen to their music right <laughs> right no and that's the truth because yeah. like uh, fast forward whenever people ask me who i work for <laughs> when i'm in hawaii particularly they'll be like oh which family are you working for and they're just waiting to hear me say an athlete or a musician right <laughs> And I'm like, you don't know them. <laughs> and that, like, that blows their mind. And they're like, what do you mean? We know all the famous black yeah, people. Yeah, we know all the famous <laughs> black people, right? So anyway, I interview with them. And, and at the end of the interview, the, the husband says to me, he goes, you know, we're not looking for a cook. We need a chef. And I was just like, I wouldn't be here if I couldn't do what you're asking me for. And I was like the first moment that I was ever really, like, confident in this space. Um, at least... Pretending to be confident in this space. How the hell are you going to question me? You got a lot of nerve. Yeah. You know who I am? You know I just did this summer? Yeah. I'm a chef chef. Like, I'm like, I've been a chef for three minutes, but yeah, I'm doing this. So Three um, minutes is 60 seconds. That's not, that's a long time. You earned yeah. it. So I get, um, I get a call the next day from their house manager, and she's like, hey, we'd like to arrange for you to do a, like a, a demo. We're going to send for you to come to, to Virginia. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm telling you, I've never had a rollout like this in my life. <laughs> Black car, hotels set up for me. I'm like... And you said demo. Yeah, this is to, just a demo for them, right? Actually, I was coming from, from... I went to go visit my family in Charlotte. So she was like, that's fine. Don't worry about it. They, they flew me out. To, I think they flew me out to Virginia. So I, I flew out to Virginia from Charlotte... Picked up by a black car. I'm not talking to Uber. I'm not talking about Uber Black. I'm talking about... Yeah. yeah I'm, this I'm, is their driver. Yeah, driver. Come pick me up. This is crazy to me. So I I, I get out there. Um, I have food poisoning. Yeah. I have food poisoning. I am sick as a dog. Oh and I'm God. like, I got to get this job. I don't care. When I tell you I was making... They had... Usually you do you do a demo you do it for just the the person the couple the family right <laughs> they have a thirteen person dinner set up um, and their chef that was leaving was there to help me get acquainted with the kitchen I will say this he wanted out so <laughs> he was like you're gonna win today right like so he set me up for <laughs> you're, success you're the one you're the one you're the one um, so he set me up for success that night but I was not feeling well at all like I'm talking about. Running back and forth to the bathroom, like it's 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 a crazy situation because I'm like, the last thing you want to do when you have food poisoning is be around food. Yes. And here I am. I need to lock this job in because actually, at the smells, end, feels, textures, and I'm making veal, guys. Wow, what a day! Uh, that was crazy. 
So I whatever I did what I did. I did. <laughs> I don't know how by the grace of God I made it. Um and everything was was really good. He like I said he he helped me a lot that day. I don't know if he knew I was sick, but I was not looking great. I know that for sure. Um and then the next day or 2 days later, um they were like, oh, you know, we'll, you'll speak to our accountant. And so, you know, you get paid for a demo. You should always get paid for a demo. Do not demo for free. That's crazy. People do it. Do not demo for free. Um, so I'm, like, trying to figure out how to get paid. And I emailed the wife. And I'm like, hi, I'm just wondering, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I don't discuss money. <laughs> she's like, speak to our accountant. Um, and <laughs> I was like, oh, this is different. Okay, cool. Like, do you have an I-9 form? Where's your I-9 form? Yo, I, I, <laughs> I was like, okay, fine. So the the accountant reaches out to me. She's like, yeah, we were looking to, to offer you this position. And I had worked closely with the chef at my last job, right? So we also had somebody teach cooking class. And cook, cooking classes, rather. Um, and so white chef. Um, and I'm saying this because often... We don't know what to ask for in terms of money. We never do. Never do. And in the Hamptons, I was making, and I'm being like completely transparent about this because I learned very quickly that that was not money, right? I'm making $1,200 a week working six days a week. Um, as a private chef, that's nothing. And I'm making three meals a day. But you know why? Unfortunately... As black people, we oftentimes are used to being the talent Mm -hmm. and not being the person who hires the talent Mm -hmm. or who owns our business. Right. So when it comes to setting a precedent of what we want Mm -hmm. and what we deserve, that's when the imposter syndrome kicks in. Yeah. Because you're like, who am I to demand this much? Right. For this amount. Right. And I worked in nonprofit before. Okay. So $1,200 a week cash. It was Liddy. You was like. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Fluent. And I was acting like it. <laughs> I really thought I was making something. Right. So I'm making $1,200 a week. And let me tell you something. $1,200 is not nothing. I'm not saying it that way. But um, when you're working about. You know. 12 hours a day. You're waking up early to go handle breakfast. Go shopping. Yeah. You're on your feet, right? I'm doing this six days a week. That was not what I should have been getting paid. Absolutely. And I took what they offered me right away, right? Because I was like, cool. Which now I realize, like, yeah, they were like, oh, she's cheap. Cool. It doesn't even really matter <laughs> that she don't have it. The, these people, I mean, this woman. We ain't going to find nobody at this price. This is great. Uh, my, my client at the time, and I'm talking about my Hamptons client, her family, we're talking money, all right? I'm Money, like, it doesn't even matter that you have money, right? Um, So, anyway, I get offered this job. I I call this chef, and I'm like, hey, I don't want to make the same mistake. Because now I'm I'm realizing I'm not doing this. I'm not making the numbers I'm supposed to be making. And she's like, yeah, I cannot believe you took that. For She's like, it's okay, though. You know, you needed to learn, whatever. And she, she gave me what I should break it down to. And she was like, you know, you just started off. It should look like your salary should look like. Uh, 125 to 150 a year and break that down like you know depending on how often you're working from them and she was like this is where you should start from right and I'm like 125 
I was making American. Yeah, <laughs> I was making like fifty two thousand dollars a year when I was working. You know, and that was like where I left. So you know, it was I, like success. Yeah, right. <laughs> um. So you know, I've, I've I really worked on the numbers, and I hand I, you know I I emailed them, and I'm shook, and I'm like, oh, maybe I went too high. They're not gonna take it, and I'm talking about five minutes later. Okay, you're good. I couldn't believe it. Now I was like, damn, I should have gone higher. <laughs> but you never know. You Man. never know. Um, and you know that is when I began to make the most money I've ever made, and. Um, the difference though was that I did not take this on as a full time job. So I wasn't working um as a full time living chef because like I mentioned, they lived in Virginia. This was me becoming their like traveling chef. They'd call me out to Virginia if they had big gigs, so you know, big dinners rather. Um, if they had dinners in New York and then they own a property in Hawaii. <clears throat> so I would travel with them there. So now I gotta fill the space, the gaps when I'm not working with them. And so I'm catering. And I'm, I'm meal prepping and I'm doing all this other stuff. And like you said earlier, like now I am responsible for my schedule and making that money, right? And filling in those gaps in those areas where like when I'm not in Hawaii with them or when I'm not traveling with them. Um, and it was it was different. It was hard. It was really hard to be disciplined because the one, one thing I lacked, <laughs> like I got the creativity, I got Attack, the hustle. The but the discipline wasn't great for me. Like I needed a schedule and I didn't have it anymore. And so um, I had these moments where I'm like, I have to re-motivate myself. I still have to do it. There's a lot of times people are like, you work all the time. I'm like, yo, I have to wake up in the morning and be like, get your ass up right now and work. Because it's very easy to do the opposite when you are your own boss or whatever. Um so, yeah, I now have been working this month is three years since I started with that particular family. That is my what I call my VIP clients. They're the people who usually take uh, precedence over any other gig that I have. I go to Hawaii with them about four times a year, three to four times a year. It could be five, depending on, you know, with the pandemic less. Um, and it's been awesome, uh, but it's also been stressful and scary and uh, definitely trying at times i can imagine like even you well i think there's a trust level there now too so like now you create dishes and cuisines and you're trying different things you're like yo i've made this Mm -hmm. try this and they're trusting you yeah and i so this last trip when i went to hawaii i hired a girl uh like a, a server while i was there that i started with when i came three years ago and she goes to me she was like Yo, it's really cool to see your progress over these last three years. Like, you're doing great. And I, I needed to hear that because I was like, I have to remind myself that I did get better. Like, I might have been good, but I have gotten a lot better. Um, and, you know, I can doubt myself, and sometimes your clients make you doubt yourself because, um, <laughs> you know, the relationship between chef and client can be interesting sometimes. But... I have gotten way better, and I've I've really put a lot of time into getting better at the things that I knew I lacked in because I did not go to school, right? And so I go by Chef B, right? And I I did not feel like I had earned that early on, but I absolutely have now. Like, I remember 
early on, this chef, um, a relative of, a, of my one of my good friends, owns a, a restaurant. And he said to me, he was like, I mean, you never worked the line, so you really aren't going to be able to be that successful in this space. And I, that day, I like, I could have cried then because I was like, damn, that's how he feels about me. Like, maybe a lot of people feel that way about me. Um, but I can laugh at that now because that person hasn't had half the opportunities that I've had, right? And not to say that what he's doing isn't, isn't great. But we once walk is not your walk, right? We have totally different paths. But I have received a lot of that energy, particularly from like this male dominated space. Um, you know, whatever. I'm not worried about them. It's interesting you say that because I feel like it comes from a sense of like it's crazy because like it's it's a male dominated. Space, mm-hmm. but the emotion and love come from women when cooking, and all of them will tell you <laughs> they learn from their moms, their grandmas, their nonas, yeah, like and all that. Doesn't of that. make yeah. any sense to me. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Like, but I think there's there's a there's a level of like when you can like you can go to a to a to a restaurant and a man can cook it. Yeah, and it's a certain degree of like it's professionalism and like got the technicality and. Mm-hmm. When a woman cooks, I still feel like you get all of those things, but you get passion. Yeah. You get love. You can feel and taste the savoriness of the food. Yeah. It's not the same energy. I mean, listen. That's me, though. Yeah, yeah. And I also have a belly, so that's also can be, like, bias. Right. I I think that... All of those things can be true for for male chefs as well. (laughs) However, um, I think there's less ego when it comes to always uh, women chefs. And, you know, we're out here. I I definitely see us pushing through that. I don't think that it's going to remain a male dominated space at all. (laughs) Um, I, I see a lot of she chefs out there doing their thing and we've moved away from I, what I do know is a lot of us have been in that catering space right mm-hmm. um or in restaurants the sous the sous chef space and not not the executive chefs but um we know what we're doing and now then now there's like no being quiet about that and people are demanding that space so that's that's pretty awesome um to see and I again in the beginning I just didn't even have the confidence to even have these conversations and now I'm like I'm here so what's next like the private chef space for me is not it's not forever it's cool it's opened a lot of opportunities I mean I I think that I could not have been as successful in food without this quickly without having taken the route that I did. And so I'm grateful for that part of the journey. I'm definitely ready to move into new spaces um, and like food entrepreneurship and things like that. But um, yeah. Speaking of food entrepreneurship and mm-hmm. event spaces, you've also been doing like private events as well for like your friends and starting like you about to start some shit. Are we gonna get it? No, we're not. Of course. (laughs) I would never do that or like of course this is about you. This Okay, okay. No, no, of course. There is not. a dinner. There is a dinner that has happened um 
that I get a lot of heat for for not inviting more people into that space. Um, so I thought that's what. <laughs> like I would never put you on the spot like that. Got you, got you, got you. No, no, no. It's fine. It's so it's honestly like a, a running joke at this. But point. I think like cooking is still very intimate mm-hmm. and it's still very much selective. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a trust thing, and I think people not only do you have to trust that person, they have to trust you as well. So right. I think. People complain because of FOMO, not because they even want to be in the space. They complain because they want to be in the moment and say they were in the moment Mm -hmm. and not take the experience for what it is. Right. And that's why you have to be diligent and you have to be selective and you have to protect your energy the same way you see we're all the way up in somewhere in the Bronx. I will not give the location of where we record opposed to recording in the city where everyone else records. Right. And it's because I, I want to protect my energy and I want to protect my guests' energy. Right, right. Somebody referred to the last dinner um, I threw or the last dinner party I threw as exclusive but inclusive, right? And I was like, oh, I'm taking that. <laughs> so I'm going to give you your credit. Actually, you know her, Edna's who, who gave Love me that. Edna. Yeah, yeah, she gave me that. So, um, yeah, I think I, I've i created spaces in my in my dining room right like that just really opens the door and creates an intimacy that allows people to build friendships and the food is the food is the the connector so yeah i i like i said i started throwing sorry i started by event planning and a lot of that i'm fortunate enough to have like a pretty good space as a renter in brooklyn i don't Hit the jackpot there. So a lot of that has happened in my home. And so I, I host dinners as often as I can, not as much anymore because I'm just traveling too much. But um, that has now moved into, like, how do I make that living room feel outside of my home, right? That's that's really what I'd like to do. Is That is, third place feeling between work and being home, mm-hmm. how do you create a space yeah. that marriages the two? yeah. Sure, because I not not that like a restaurant's off the table. It might it might be on the table, but like, hey. <laughs> um, but whatever the next step is, it definitely there, there's a table involved, like a, a chef's table, something where I can bring a small group, an intimate group, not necessarily small, but an intimate group of people together in order to connect, and that happening on a more regular basis. And I know we were talking. Uh, before off air about your obsession with shoes yeah. and in dabbling in that. Yeah. And how have you been integrating that into your uh to your life as well now? So I I'm going back to the Hamptons, one thing that not only just being black, it was like I did not fit in in terms of like cookie cutter like pulled my hair back I got long nails guys even though everybody's like you a chef how do you have nails I wear gloves um you know (laughs) I got my nose pierced I'm tatted I mean a lot of chefs are tatted up but like I express myself right through how I look and in those spaces it's not always welcomed and so I love sneakers I love I love shoes, period. It's not exclusive to sneakers, but I I love sneakers. And so what I'm thinking is, how do I create a space in those fancy restaurants that still allows, you know, me to be me, 
Right? And that's that's not necessarily just my space because my space welcomes everybody. But I want to create that space in other people's spaces. Um, so that's how I've been. So I started a dinner um, and we launched it as like, I won't say the name, but we launched the dinner as sneak at Chicks and Kicks, right? Mm-hmm. And so went to one of my favorite Michelin star restaurants. Um, they just got their Michelin star, Crown Shy. And I luckily have... A relationship with the chef there reached out to him and i you know was very excited because he's also a sneakerhead a big sneakerhead cool. so like it just made sense right i'm like yeah this this has to be where i launched this and so yeah you know like they play hip-hop in the restaurant and it, i think like just the industry is shifting in terms of like people are able to be more creative and not very stuffy and and I think that particular restaurant shows that they play hip hop. He's a sneakerhead. He like, you know, he's. I mean, the menu is insane. The cocktails are great. I'm not getting paid for this. I just happen to really love their food. Um, and so yeah, so I, I I did chicks and kicks, and I just wanted my girls to look fly. So it was like the idea of chicks and kicks was, I want y'all to dress up, but I want you guys to bring, you know, the sneakers that that show your personality. Mm-hmm. And I'd like how I'd like to move that forward is, you know, get into those spaces that have not necessarily been very welcoming, right? Like a lot of times we are shut out of places by like no hats, no sneakers, oh, no whatever. Like nah, fuck that. We're coming to eat. We're coming to spend money. We're coming to spend a lot of money. So let us in with our sneakers on, you know. Absolutely. And so. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's how I'm I'm connecting those two passions. Where it's like I love sneakers, I love I love the creativity that comes from that. Like you get some some fly shit, you're gonna get the outfit that goes with it. You're gonna, you know, I'm an accessories person. I always got jewelry on and all of that. So, being able to do that is like my canvas on the outside, and then like the plate, you know, the food is is a different canvas. So I, I'm bringing those two passions together. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> like uh, in the way you could see how your eyes light up talking about it. Like it was kind of like the same when we went to Portland. When I went to Portland, I went to Deadstock Coffee. Yeah, and it's a sneaker store in a coffee shop. Yeah, and like I instantly fell in love. I was like, oh my god, there's like this, there's Air Maxes and there's Jordans and there's right. and they're like they, it's artisanal, so they put like they make cappuccinos with like sneakers on them and shit like that. And it's like, oh my god, I love this. Right. So I understand, like, the culture is changing. As a perception of success changes, mm-hmm. the, per- the look of success changes. And I think we're getting to a space, especially after COVID, that we define what professionalism looks like and how we feel about it. We, it kind of, I want to say it started even when Mark Zuckerberg wore pajamas to a meeting and he owned Facebook. So, you know, I'm not wearing a suit. Yeah. And I think for, of course, you know, white privilege and for them, for, 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 for that aspect, it was always available for them to have that space. Yeah. But I think black people are at a space where we're like, we're going to, if we can't have the success that you have, we'll find the success our own way and right. we'll do it our own way and be comfortable in our truth. Right. And, you know, what's funny is like this pandemic with working from home athleisure and like you know the i forgot what these these what they call this this like 
type of clothing. But, you know, the sweatpants, the making the cute, right? The sweatpants, the leggings, it has become more normal, right? Because now mm-hmm. people are like, I don't want to have to put a suit back on ever again. Never. Right? Um, and listen, I love to see black people dressed up. So I'm not saying that we should. I love it. It's beautiful, right? There's nothing like it. But it's like we don't always have to do that. You know, and so I think that now people are pushing back like this worked. Right. We were able to be ourselves. We were able to be on Zoom with our fitteds on, with our hoodies on and all of this. And work still got done. You didn't need me to put on a three piece suit. The monkey suit. I don't need to put on a monkey suit to show my professionalism. Right. And my skill. And so I think that that pushback is happening. First of all, look. Gen Z just does what they want. <laughs> Shout out to them. I love that about them. Yeah, Gen Z is pretty crazy. They do what they want. They really, they've, they've really stripped down more layers than we did. Yeah, yeah. They're like no bullshit. They just want what they want. They do what they want. If they don't see the, like, I think we started to question things. Yeah. And they are like, it doesn't make sense, so why are we doing it, right? Yeah, like we went to college because we were told to go to college, and that was the definition of success. Yeah. Uh, When we got out of college, we realized that there were no jobs for us in the fields that we went to. Um, And then we realized that half of the shit that we went to school for, we didn't even want to do. Right. And I, I attributed that a lot to Kanye West. Like, with college dropout, me getting into Lupe Fiasco, more creative, backpackers were becoming feature artists, the music changed, culture changed, art became bigger, where we started questioning the conventional job, like, why can't I be a creative? Yeah. If if there's a Howard Stern, why can't I be Howard Stern? Why is Emerald Lagasse the only one on TV? I can be, I can do this. Like it became those things or like our own, like I always say, if you want to make God laugh, show him your plan. Right. So I think that's what really happened. We let life go. Right. Instead of us trying to manipulate it to what we thought we wanted. Right. And you know, with, with social media happening in our generation, like it just gave us the platforms to really push those things through, but they grew up in social media. So like they don't know anything else and they, they just have the access and exposure to do things and without anything holding them back. So sometimes, you know, you, I, I've definitely gotten to that age where I'm like already looking like, you know, when I was your age, yo, that's we had no, so, we had no for the internet. <laughs> I imagine that I would be like sixty before I started speaking like that, but I, I'm already doing like when I was your age, right? But at the same time, like I have a sister that's eighteen, and I'm just like, yo, do what you want, do what you want, yeah. And I, I love that they're willing to. I love that they're just nothing is holding them back. You know, I'm not I'm not regretful for the journey that I took because it might have been the longer way to get here, but it showed me a lot. And, you know, my passion for food came from human services. Right. Like I still I still teach and I teach in communities of color that are in considered food deserts. And and I teach in that space because I still need to feed that part of my soul. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not regretful for that. However, who knows if 
I was 18 and my mother said, go to FIT, do it. I support you where, like where, what my life would have been like. Um, and you know, later on in life, by the way, my mom is a big cheerleader now. She, she definitely (laughs) was scared for me, but has supported me for sure. Like in, in this journey, she, she's excited about it. She loves telling her friends about it. <laughs> so like my mom will FaceTime me and be like, Oh, you're in Hawaii. Just so that she could let her friends know that. No, I, you know, I was in Hawaii. You yesterday. knew I was in Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it took a long time for her to get there. And by the way, my mom quit her job and started the business when I was 15. So she, was starting to project those fears onto me because she knew it was difficult. But instead I just asked her before she did that was like, yeah, I just need your support. You know, I was at the age where it's like, I'm not, I'm not calling you and asking you for money. Yeah. I might. <laughs> but, <laughs> I might. Sometimes. But, like that. <laughs> um, yeah. but I just, I just need you to be behind me on this. And so anyway, I am, um, I think I sidetracked, but yeah, they, they do what they want. And you know, what would you say to 11-year-old you? <laughs> 11-year-old me. Um, it's all right to try different things, but try to stick it out <laughs> for sure. I think I would, if I could speak to 11-year-old me, it would be about like discipline and consistency. Um, because that makes this space a lot easier. If you can be disciplined, if you can be consistent, um, the growth is a lot different. And so I think I would want to instill that in me at 11 versus me teaching myself that in my 30s. Agreed. I definitely understand that. And you possibly would have been the first, like, black designer slash kung fu dance master (laughs) (laughs) all of the things all of the things that woman let me do everything it's so crazy um imagine yeah and i wasn't that great at any of them so whatever um yeah i could have i could have done all the things i was actually really uh you know i was Good at drawing. I was really good at that at that age. Um, I, I haven't practiced, so like I, you know, recently picked up a sketch pad, and I'm like, Ugh. but I was really good at that time. Um, I really could like see clothes and recreate it very quickly. Um, so I was that I was good at, but there wasn't. My mom didn't know how to fuel that space. She did, you know, like oh, dance, sure, dance class. Karate, karate class. I didn't, and I didn't care about. I cooked. I liked cooking, but I, I not enough for me to be like. I want to take cooking classes at that time. I didn't even know that was a thing, to be honest with you. Like, but now we're here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This has been awesome. You enjoyed yourself? No, I really did. I really did. Um, I. I was speaking to you offline about how I hate speaking on mics and it was like just it was a little bit scary for me. But um yeah, I love this. This was great. This is great. Can you tell the beautiful people where they can find you? Sure. Um at Flavor Over Fancy on IG as well as Binu B I N O U dot B E E 
dot cooking. So Binu be cooking. And the reason I have two pages is like people have said to me, you should only have one page. I thought that I was supposed to have a business page when I first started. See, things that you learn, right? Yeah. And so Flavor Over Fancy is like the official business page, um, but it doesn't really, my personality isn't there. Uh, Binu be cooking is really, that. that's me. That's, you know where I talk about where I eat, I show you what I eat, what I make, and all of those things. And so at some point, I'll, I'll figure out a way to join the two. But I would say cooking is where to find me. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, this is Live from the Stoop with Robbie Digital. Till next time, let's go.